This is Mark Blood. And I'm Tim Mason. Welcome to Episode 5 of Blood, Sweat, and Tim. Live from Crystal Pick Studios in Fairport, New York, it's another episode of Blood, Sweat, and Tim with your hosts, Mark Blood and Tim Mason. So I'm excited about this edition of uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tim because, you know, what we're trying to do with this podcast is all about helping to drive business. And today we're going to talk about automobile industry and what that's doing and where that's going and where it's going to take us in the future. Mark? I, I, Tim, I think there's some very interesting stuff that's happening in the automotive business. And today with us, we have Luke Wurzinger, who uh, is a senior manager with uh, DeJoy Knopf and Blood. He's got uh, deep exposure to the automotive world. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how um, the automotive world, automotive dealers, um, everybody who touches them on them is uh, likely to be, uh, I guess I would say, disrupted a little bit over maybe the next couple of decades. So uh, thanks for being with us, Luke. Um, if you um, took your historical knowledge of the automotive business, which in your case uh, started with your early days of being able to turn a wrench and being able to actually service cars, um, what do you think is some of the, the disrupting things that are going to happen in the automotive world? Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, there are a lot of, when you look at the automotive uh, dealership model and, and what it's gone through in its history, there have been a lot of disruptions that have happened over the, the period of time through emissions, different things that have happened. But I think the biggest thing that's impacting automotive dealerships and cars in general is, is just the electrification of cars, which is coming, which basically means the internal combustion engine, the gas engine you fill your car up with, that's going away. Um, there's debate as to how long it's going to be before they're no longer in your car, but um, they will be going away. And that has various amounts of implications to um, all types of industries, um, you know, and, and consumers in general. So, so if you if you give an example, like uh, one of the things we've talked about in the past is uh, measures like uh, moving parts on a car that's uh, that is run by an in internal combustion engine versus moving parts on an electric car. How dramatic is that? Right. So when you look at the average um, internal combustion engine uh, car, they call them ice powertrains, there's about 2,000 moving parts that you have to keep track of in service, and there's all types of things that can go wrong with them. When you look at an electric car like a Tesla or, or a Chevy Volt, there's about 20. Um, so obviously, the when the amount of moving parts go down, it impacts dealerships um, that have to service these cars because, in theory, there are fewer parts to break. Now, one of the interesting things that's happened is since these electric cars like the Tesla have come out and, and General Motors cars and Nissan's Leaf, that actually hasn't been the case. But the technology is still very, very new. Um, so although there are less moving parts, there are bugs to work out, and those will eventually go away over a period of time. So if, if, I'm, if I'm a car dealer and I have a service model where I'm servicing cars and so forth, 
um, that in theory was going to have a pretty big impact on what my service business might look like and and what my earnings might be from servicing cars. How else is um, that change in transportation uh, potentially disruptive to um, transportation by automobiles overall? Well, I think the biggest thing is the dependency on uh, uh, crude oil, gasoline, uh, diesel. Um, ultimately, that's going to slow. Um, you know, it's not going to completely go away. You're still going to fly in an airplane right now that's that's powered. Still going to cut my lawn. Yeah, you're still going to cut your. Well, you can get an electric lawnmower to do that. That's true. <laughs> so, it's it's not going to be a complete disruptor. But you know, I think when I think about it, sure, gas prices may rise over the short term, but the overall dependency on crude oil over the next ten years, certainly over the next twenty years, is just going to drop off a cliff. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what changes happen in the marketplace related to that. It's a little scary that, uh, you know, you start thinking about this and the, the impact that electrification can have because, you know, there's so many things dependent on it. The automobile industry is an economic driver in the United States and around the world. I mean, tell me some of the other, you know, you got unemployment, you got people making the parts that people are no longer going to need to replace. Yeah, I think that that definitely is going to be in a, a change. Um, you know, but the auto industry, the auto dealer model, ship, model has been very robust in its ability to change. When you look at other businesses, and, and Mark, you see a lot of auto dealers, so you know this, um, they have had to change more probably in the past 17 years due to technology than any other business on the face of the earth. If you're a successful auto dealer, you know you can't just have a salesman that was a salesman brought up in the 80s and 90 that's sitting on your showroom floor that's that's going to flag down a customer and and talk them into buying a car you are using every single social media outlet you're using all different types of um, information in order to learn and track your buyers to attract to attract them, to get them to either visit your dealership or in some cases get them not to visit your dealership so you can go out and you can deliver the car to them. Um, dealers are very good at adapting to change. So the key is going to be how quickly are dealers going to adapt to the changes of electrification and change their business model in order to make it successful. And I think that, you know, you're going to have some that are going to do it really well, and then you're going to have some that uh, probably aren't going to do it as well. So one of the things that's, that's, that has just recently come to Rochester is, uh, is Uber. And uh, there's many people that think that as Uber comes to be a, an everyday part of life that you're going to potentially see uh, fewer cars being sold. You're going to potentially see... Uh, those cars um, being run by electric because it, that, that's much easier to manage them on Uber's network. Um, and it may be a much easier way to get to an, an autonomous vehicle. Um, how, how do dealers and how does um, automotive marketing look at the advent of services like Uber? Well, from the manufacturer standpoint, they're deeply vested in trying to figure out the ride-sharing market. And this is something that is a little bit less certain. When you stop and think about it, you know, I, I 
can't quote the statistics exactly, but if you when you buy a car, you only use a car about five percent of the time, and it sits idle in your driveway, and you cars are expensive. It's the most underutilized asset on the face of the earth. That's what people always say. But what I challenge you to do is to go home and look at how many miles you've driven out over the past three years, do the math and find out how much it costs you per mile. Then go to Uber, do the math and see how much it would cost you to use Uber. The answer is going to be it costs you about twice as much to use Uber than it does to use your car. And that's even with the 5%, you know, utilization rate of your, your vehicle, even when you're not using it that much. So the trick in this is once cars become fully autonomous, you don't have to pay a driver to sit in the seat, Uber becomes a lot more cost effective compared to using a car. And that's one of the tricks that, that I think you'll see some, some, some mass shift to Uber. And this is talking about a model outside a metropolitan area where where everybody lives close to work. You don't really need a car. Most American families don't live in that type of a situation. You live in a either a suburb or out in a place where you have to de- drive ten to twelve thousand miles a year. So if if you look at the electrification of cars and you look at um, the the scale of Uber, the scale of Lyft. What you're essentially saying is where they're really going to get scale and they're going to get the ability to make money is by pulling labor out of their equation. Absolutely. And this is the piece that ties into every other single industry out there. Once you do it with a, a ride you know, share service, you do it to everything. You do it to your trucking companies, um, all of the businesses that rely on drivers um, a lot of times can go away. You don't need pizza delivery drivers, right? You just need a car that can go to an address, and that is instantly gone. So, Who brings it into the house, though? Well, you just go Who up Who can my car. dog bite? Yeah. You bite the tire. Well, you, you saw the other day that, uh, that Amazon was now going to have their – um, the delivery people actually drop the package into your house. Um, which... I know they have drones that are now driving them on, uh, you know, the yeah. front porch. It, interestingly enough, Domino's uh, said they will deliver a pizza in a driverless car within ten years. They made that statement. So, and the Domino's driver will now bring a pizza into your house as well uh, in some markets, which is which is actually very, you know, very, very interesting uh, how the model has. Uh, developed. Is there any impact on the rental car business as it relates to, you know, driverless vehicles and Absolutely. and all that too? Because I mean that's a that's a hell of a business too. And I think, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast may do traveling on business and things and how it's gonna start to affect uh, you know, then going to Hertz or National or whoever to to rent a car. So one of the things, if you know a little bit about how car rental companies work or how they make a lot of profit, if they can flip a car multiple times in a day, really, that's that's where they see their profit. But if you look at it, what difference is a rental car company to Uber if you have an autonomous car that can just you press a button and say, I want to go from here to here, and now I want to go an hour later from here to here. It's essentially the same thing. They're so, almost going to have to be on the Uber uh, cost model, right? Exactly. I mean, what it charges and have an app that says, I want to go from here to there, and it costs you X amount of dollars to do that. 
Well, Tim, one of the things that I think is interesting is if you look at valuations, stock market valuations of companies like Hertz and, and Avis and those other rental companies, if you looked at the trend over the past 24 months, you'd see degradation in the value of their stock. Um, a number of these companies have had to pull back on their earnings estimates, and they've also had to pull back on valuation guidance. And it's really, you're seeing in some of these big metro markets, you're seeing them really be impacted by, um, by some of these other um, uh, avenues to be able to buy transportation, which is, um, which is, uh, which is through Uber. Uh, or through Lyft or, or anything else, you know, any similar services to that. I think that's one of the reasons why you see companies like GM trying to partner with Lyft, Uber, is because right now when you stop and look at GM fleet sales, you know, they sell a lot of brand new cars to Enterprise Rent-A-Car, a lot of them. So it's an avenue for them to, to sell and to get rid of their cars. If they see that that's going to go away, they need something else to replace it. So that's why, logically, they would go to a ride-sharing ride service. Really? Yep. So, so in, in terms of, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the, the marketing of vehicles, and you talked a little bit about, you know, the, the sales process and so forth. Um, how, how has that changed over the years, and what, it's, what does it potentially change into uh, going forward? That's a great, great question because it, it addresses a fundamental shift, which no matter what business you're in, car business or anything else, you have to think about. And that's the, the Gen Z millennial uh, versus Gen X and baby boomer uh, shift that's going to happen. So, so in, in 2011, the, the percentage is you, of car buyers, at least, is you had about 20% of the, you know, we'll call them Gen Zs and, and versus 80% of the Gen X baby boomers. Um, by 2020, it's going to be 40-60, and by 2025, they're saying that's the equalization rate. So basically, where you're going to have this new generation that we all crack jokes about and we all try to figure out, um, they're going to be your customers, 50% of them. So you have to, right now, think about how you're going to attract them, both from a workforce um, and from a customer point. Um, which is challenging. You have to get into understanding what drives them, what they like, but more importantly, what they dislike. Isn't there a move of a lot of millennials into the urban environment so potentially don't even need a car? You know, I mean, there, there is a work, move, right? But. There is, and there's also a move into your parents' uh, basement. So, um, Either 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 point transportation. I think you see. I'm this. moving back in with my mother. <laughs> so she doesn't want you to move in. E either way, when you stop and think about it, um, I think it was the Gen Xers where, um, when you looked at the, the the buying habits from purchasing a car, they everybody said you know they're only buying sedans, these cars, you know, and that was kind of the the shift back to the sedans that we saw. And then once they got to the age where they all started having kids, you saw them tilt all of a sudden back towards the SUVs. And, and that's part of the shift that we've seen now is where everybody's, you know, everybody under the sun is buying an SUV. Um, so although you like to think that, th that 
that that generation is just going to migrate towards, uh, you know, a place where mass transit would be favored. Eventually, uh, the thought process is, is that they would be the same consumers that would be buying the same products as everybody else. So the electrification of cars, and I know, um, I think somebody shared a story or I recently heard about the hurricane and people being able to like beam information to the car that allowed it to go further away from the hurricane for those people driving out of Florida or wherever the heck they were. What kind of security concerns are there with electrification and people being able to, you know, potentially, you know, if they can hack into the internet, they can hack into a car. So what does that do and what concerns does that present and what protection, you know, do people have to start getting for that? I mean, there's cyber liability insurance, but you know what? <laughs> this right. gets a little bit right. uh, deeper than that. So I think if everybody under fully understood the technology that was in their cars, how they actually work, which everybody says is very, very complicated, but in reality, it, it's not that complicated if you break it up into its small pieces. The same technology that you, that you have on updating your smartphone can happen to your, your car. They can enable your vehicle to do different things um, if the factory lets it. So a lot of the protection against cybersecurity is going to lay on the, the arms of the manufacturers. Um, they're the ones that have to design a bulletproof product that people cannot interrupt or, or hack, if you will. Um, so from, from that standpoint, I think that you're going to probably see legislation, and you, ha you have, where, where people have enacted certain laws and requirements that vehicles have to conform to. The bigger piece for auto dealers in general, and this is something that I think keeps a lot of auto dealerships or auto dealers up, is cybersecurity and their information. When you, when you stop and you think about banks and branch offices, a lot of times you walk into a branch office, you can instantly tell that they're concerned about security from the standpoint of getting robbed. You walk in, you see hundreds of cameras, you see the gigantic vault. So you instantly have this impression that no matter what you try to do, you're, you're not going to get away with it. People that steal usually go after something that's valuable. Not every time, but most of the time. When you look at the information that the average car dealer collects from consumers, it's extremely valuable. The information about how Mark Blood drives his car, how many miles he puts on a year, where he goes, where he likes to stop and go get coffee in the morning, um, how often he replaces his tires, you know, where he purchases his gas, why does he purchase his gas, um, when he purchased that car, his credit information, um, on that deal, that information is all in some way, shape, or form housed at the dealer level. So there's this, dealers are charged through a variety of institutions with keeping your information safe and secure. They often have these, uh, not often, most dealers have dealer management systems, or we call them DMS systems, which keep and house all this data. And you sign your life away on these agreements that basically say these DMS providers can have all that information and access to that information. Um, protecting that information is the responsibility of the dealer. Um, so in many cases... But that is that information embedded in your car? It's embedded in your car, yes, and that can be extracted out. 
um, when you when you bring it in for service or their or or your driving habits in general. Um, your GPS system it has all your information on it. You know, I bought a used vehicle recently with a GPS system on it, and instantly I could go back and see where the previous owner lived, all the trips that they had driven. I know it sounds I was trying to figure out how to erase it, but all that information was right there. They probably had no clue that their car retained all that information. Did the auto dealer not do their job? Because shouldn't that information have been erased, or is that impossible? Well, it's not impossible. It's it's just um, it's not part of their job to erase that that data. Well, the the uh, car now, you know, you often hear about when there's a plane crash. You hear about the black box. Cars have the equivalent of a black box in them, uh, so there is. The, the data that has been collected by the car, by the operation of the car and where it is, is collected in the car. So it's it's kind of, they, they know everything. It, so they're going to know is. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan on my trips to Orchard Park every Sunday at 1 o'clock. Right. And they know they know whether they won or not based because on your speed driving back home. <laughs> I love I, it. But a lot of times when you stop and you think about this, all, all of that information is already known because of your smartphone. So... It knows where you've been. So, you know, that information is tracked. The specific repair history and and that type of information that the dealer may have, that's different. Uh, the financing information, the security of that is that different. And that's why you see the um, real dilemma is it's not, you've heard this saying, it's not when you're going to get hacked, but it, or it's not if, but when you're going to get hacked. And uh, so in a dealership's case, I, I heard somebody say the other day that it's minimum it's going to cost you between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars. So you have the choice of you know what type of a insurance premium do you want to take out for that, or do you want to run the risk? Luke, what what about commercial vehicles and commercial trucking and things like that? Is there a you have an idea on how this technology is going to start to impact that? I mean, you know whether it's. Uh, you know, somebody like Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning who has a fleet of 200 trucks and, you know, they're on the road every day, uh, vans really, you know, and uh, or whether it's Wegmans who, you know, has a huge fleet, you know, taking uh, food and other things and supplies to the various stores. I mean, what is the impact of electrification and, and driverless uh, systems with that? It's no doubt going to change it. Uh, if you have a fully autonomous... Let me back up a second. When you stop and you think about accidents in general, um, and I listened to a Google executive last week field the question, uh, if you look statistically, um, deaths by um, motor vehicle are up. Um, They've gone up uh, quite alarmingly at a rate over the past few years. And the reason is it's the distractions, it's the cell phones, it's all the technology that they put in your car. And I'm sure everybody here, it doesn't matter who's listening to this, you get a text message and you're driving your car, even if you don't answer it, you think about it if you somehow. So one of the, uh, this Google executive was asked the question, what is uh, Google doing to make their technology safer so that it reduces the overall accidents? And I thought the response it was it was quite quite, quite candid, and they basically said, "We're going to get rid of drivers. That's how we're going to deal with this problem. Because it doesn't matter whether you have you disable things, 
people will get distracted. But the moment you take drivers out of the driver's seat, you eliminate those distractions and you make roads safer. So I think as it pertains to your question, um, certainly um, autonomous vehicles will will happen in mass in in the commercial industry. I think it will make roads safer. So so how so if, so you got to give a little explanation behind that. So you often hear you see articles in the newspaper on the nightly news where they talk about this autonomous vehicle, this Tesla vehicle or something like that, was in an accident and it crashed in an accident. So people immediately get alarmed by that and they say, well, the autonomous vehicle is going to crash. But but they don't really ever draw a comparison to the fact of what happens when you put a human being behind the steering wheel. Right. I think when you see, there are different levels of autonomy. There are these levels from uh, from one to five. Uh, and a Tesla is not a five. Um, it's you know it has certain autonomous features that you can turn off and on, but it is not a full autonomous vehicle. So sometimes when you have a driver that treats it like a fully autonomous vehicle because it's an option that exists, you can get into trouble. Um, the technology on the Tesla is not up. To where it needs to be to be a fully autonomous level five car but it will eventually come uh, there are cars out there the google car which is logging tons and tons of mileage um, accident free um, is one example um, i think the technology will be there the technology is almost all there it has to become first cost effective um, which will happen in not too distant of a future because if you could convince an insurance company that you know, you had a fully autonomous vehicle that didn't get into accidents, it would certainly be attractive. And people may not really realize that their cars today have all these autonomous features. I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm sitting and saying, now I know why in my car, when I go veer left or veer right, my steering wheel vibrates. Right. You know, it has this capability. That's the that's basically an autonomous approach, right? I get too close to a car in front of me or, you know, driving back from the Bills game and it's crazy on the throughway and I get a little I get a little red um, car in front of me. It's telling me that I'm, you know, 10 feet from the car in front of me and I better slow down. There are actually BMWs that actually slow themselves down well, that's, when you that's get it. in front of them. Or so they will these... actually turn the steering right. wheel forward. Right. I mean, and, and I, I think there are a lot of people out there who don't really realize that's actually, you're, you're driving some of the capabilities of an autonomous vehicle and it's helping them. One of the questions I have is you can have these autonomous vehicles how do they coexist with people who actually have to drive? Because that's where I think you're running the problem where, you know, you're still going to have these crazy drivers out there. You know, most people drive fairly normally, but we've all faced, you know, or been on the road with somebody who's driving erratically. Okay, that's still going to happen. But how do these, you know, can they coexist? I mean, they're going to have to, right? Because not like overnight, it's going to say, okay, only autonomous vehicles. Absolutely. And and they will. And um you know, my my wife's car has some of the same features you were describing, where it's uh, the adaptive cruise control and the lane departure. Um, so I was driving on 590 a couple of weeks ago, cruise control, uh, and then all of a sudden somebody from the left lane came in, swerved in front of me, slammed on the brakes because it's 590, right? And instantly, car completely slows down. I did not touch the brake pedal. It slams on the brake. The you know the whatever warning goes off, flashes red in your face, and then it just 
maintained a safe distance and slowed it down. So the tech, it's not perfect. Um, the, it will get there. I think the technology will be there and we will have to wait for people to embrace it before, before it actually gets used. That's going to be the bigger hurdle is saying, okay, now that we know that the technology exists, when will we um, here be comfortable with the fact that I can go in, program my address, hit the button, and, uh, you know. Luke, so did can you overcome the perception of people? Because you, you heard a lot of stories, I think, where Uber had, Uber, uh, had you know, driverless vehicles and everything, and there were accidents and lawsuits and all this stuff. But you're telling us that this technology is pretty close, and actually human error versus driverless errors or autonomous vehicles actually is in favor of autonomous vehicles at this point. Yeah, it's, you know, I like to think of a, a book I read that went and talked about when in the automotive industry, when we went from steam-powered cars to gasoline-powered cars, the advertising campaign by the makers of the steam engines was you don't want to buy one of those explosion engines. There are explosions that happen inside that thing thousands of times every minute. And that was their big push. And people were scared of them because they didn't understand the technology. And I think the fact is we will eventually get there. When? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. But it will you know, it will be my kids or my grandkids saying to me, you mean you actually had steering wheels in your car? Mark, do you still have the crank to start your car in the morning? <laughs> No, I, I just got a new one. You got a new one, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we we've we've talked um, a bunch about kind of what the future looks like and and where the where the disruption is. And you, you talked a little bit about how how car dealers are a, a resilient lot, which I I definitely agree with. Um, what do you what do you think kind of the takeaways are for those people that sell automobiles, that service automobiles, what are, what are kind of, you know, one or two things that they need to be thinking about? You know, I think that people have to embrace change before it actually happens. You have to be ahead of the curve. And that's true for, for any type of an industry, but especially for dealers. It's easy to complain. It's easy to sit back and think this will never happen or you can just embrace it, move forward, and set yourself up to, to, to be a success. Um, so I think just being able to embrace change is, is the biggest thing. Being able to, if you can't do it yourself, have a group of people underneath you that can um, look you know, and try to adapt and drive change for you. Um, you know, and, and the other thing, I think the biggest thing for, for car dealers is they're going to have to uh, really think about the Gen Z and millennials and how you are or are not going to um, capture that, that business. How are you going to retain that? Um, there are some uh, ad agencies out there that are doing three-second commercials for their dealership, literally three seconds. And it's just enough to get right out in front of your face and then it's done. So you can get on when you're, when you're on your, your phone looking at your YouTube video or whatever else. So you have to really understand them. They're gonna be your employees, they're gonna be your customers. And it's no different than in an accounting firm, right? Um, they're gonna be our coworkers and they're gonna be our clients. So if you can't understand them, uh, 
you're going to be out of business. Luke, I got to tell you, I'm really impressed with your background and experience in this area. But and and I know Mark wouldn't necessarily say this because it would be a little self-serving. But as a client of DKB, I'm just curious, you know, why the need to understand all this, right? How does it better help you service the clients that you're dealing with? Is it helping them? strategically plan for the future? Is it understanding revenue sources? Is it, you know, I, I mean, I'm just super impressed with, you know, and I know you that the firm DKB is into this in a lot of different areas that they're trying to get smart in all these verticals. But, you know, tell me what the benefit is to clients out there in the automobile industry and and your knowledge. Well, I think it, it comes down to you have to understand your client's business. If you don't, you really shouldn't be giving them advice. Um, and that's what it comes down to. If you don't understand the problems they're facing, then it's there's no way you can have empathy for what they're going through. You, you wouldn't be able to make value-added suggestions um, without truly understanding those things. And that's what it all comes down to. I mean, you would never... Uh, take your car to someone that to be repaired that you know solely worked on lawnmowers because yeah they can they can kind of understand it but do they really understand it and the answer is no and it's it's the same way especially when you're trying to give uh, advice from a financial assurance or um, on the the tax side you know give advice on strategies that can really make a difference to dealers if you don't understand what's going through their head you don't understand the problems they're facing uh, you don't understand what's keeping them awake at night then you're really not going to give great service which is what it boils down to yeah sometimes i think tim i refer to it when you and i have conversations as can you see the future um, and if you can see the future, you can be that guiding force. You can be that advocate for change. You can be that advocate for, gee, you really should be thinking about different strategies here. If you don't understand the underpinnings of how the business operates and how it performs, uh, you're in a difficult position to be able to have those conversations with sure, your client. Sure, I think anybody in the professional service business is kind of the same thing. But, uh, Luke, very impressed. I just... Uh, hit the app on my phone to have my car come up. Uh, this is our last uh, interview of the day, so thanks so much for being here. Thank you, guys. It's thanks a lot, Luke. From Mark Blood and Tim Mason, thanks for listening to this edition of Blood, Sweat, and Tim. We hope you'll keep putting your blood, sweat, and tears into your business and that you'll join us for our next BST podcast.